Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 15 through 21. Because of the AC uh, problem we got going on here, the doors are open. So if you're having trouble hearing in the, in the back because you're by a door and the car, cars going by bother you, you can, you're f feel free to move up closer <clears throat> or wave your hand and I'll try to be a little louder, but I can't get too much more than this. So, all right, Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Let me go ahead and read the verses we're going to be covering tonight. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, if you're going to be honest with yourself, you sat there going, I think the only verse that made any sense to me was verse 20. You know, we, we've all over the years heard people teach on and quote on, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, Christ lives in me. You know, okay, now, what I want you to see tonight is that actually even that verse that we all know real well, in the context of what I'm going to be showing you tonight, actually is tied to what we looked at last time when we were together, when we looked at how Paul rebuked Peter for the fact that he had been eating with the Gentiles, but then when the Judaizers, the people from the Jerusalem church had come down, who thought that it still wasn't right, they hadn't been circumcised, that Peter, as you know, last time we got together, he was afraid of what they thought, and he pulled away from the Gentiles and acted like he didn't eat with them. And of course, we looked last week at how Paul said, I rebuked him to his face because he was in the wrong. And we looked last week at the fact that it was a gospel issue, and that's why it was so serious. What I want you to see tonight, which may surprise you, because honestly, it totally surprised me, was this section that is actually in many of our Bibles separated. How many of you, uh, show of hands, in your Bibles, is there a break between chapter, uh, verse 14 and verse 15? All right, some of your Bibles don't. I've seen that when I've talked to some other people about this. Many of them do. And actually, the Bibles that don't have the break, I think actually are more accurate. There is, shouldn't be a break here between verse 14 and verse 15. You're going to see that the whole rest of this section that we're looking at tonight, even that famous part, I've been crucified with Christ, yet I no longer live, that all is tied together in context to Paul's rebuking of Peter. And so when you take a look at this passage now that we read and go, I'll be honest with you, I don't understand that. You watch, it'll explode as we tie it back to what we looked at last time and how Paul was dealing with Peter's pulling away from the Gentiles because he was afraid of what the Judaizers or his Christian brothers who were Jewish had to, had to say or what they thought. All right. Now, the beginning, though, throws us off because we're surprised to hear Paul call the Gentiles what? Sinners. What I want you to hear and see here is Paul is actually using sarcasm. And I'm going to show you some other sarcasm that Paul uses in another passage that will parallel this, and it will make a whole lot more sense. But I want you to also see something else. When Paul says here we, in the Greek, it's clearer. He's actually talking about himself and Peter. 
All right. What you're about to see is, you know how Paul said that he rebuked Peter? He confronted him to his face because he was in the wrong. Actually, many, many believe, and I'm with them, that what we see here in verses 15 through 21 actually are what he said to Peter. In his rebuke, this is actually the basis. It may not be word for word how he worded it, but this is the basis of what it is he actually said to Peter when he rebuked him. And he used a term that the Jewish people used for the Gentiles. They were just thought of as Gentile sinners. I mean, they were the Jews. They were the righteous ones. They were the ones who had been given the law of God. And they had been given the covenants. And they were the ones loved by God. Some of you have heard me say this before, but a lot of you may not understand this. Unfortunately, the Jewish people's mindset toward the Gentiles was this. That there were only two possible reasons why God made the Gentiles. They were so sure that they were God's people and everybody else wasn't. They thought, well, there has to be only two main reasons why God made them. One, the Jewish people needed servants. And two, well, he's got to put somebody in hell. And so the Gentiles were made for hell. And so the Jewish mindset was very much against the Gentiles. That's why even in, we see in Jesus' day, they wouldn't even go through Samaria because Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile, because during the captivity when they were taken into Babylon, they had intermarried with their captors, with the Babylonians. And so those people were, in their minds, half-breeds. And so they would say nothing to do with Gentiles, let alone that, even though they were, those people were half Jewish, half Gentile, they considered a half-breeds, they wouldn't even go through Samaria, they went around. Of course, we know that Jesus would go through Samaria and he had interaction with them. And we saw last week that in God's eyes, there's no partiality. Through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and through his blood, through faith in him, we're all equal in the eyes of God. All right. Now, Paul, though, look closely. I want you to see. And if you want to mind marking in your Bibles, look at how many times Paul says we and our. And he's talking about himself and Peter. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not, quote unquote, Gentile sinners. Yet, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners is Christ. All those places where he says, we, 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 our, we too, he actually in the Greek is it's showing us that he's talking about himself and Peter. This is his conversation with Peter. Now he's sharing it with the Galatians so they would understand what's, what's going on and what has gone on. But it will, this whole passage now will make so much more sense when you understand he's referring to himself and Peter. All right? Now, he says, look, Paul, Peter, you and I are Jews by birth. We're the supposedly the better ones. Yet we know what? We know that a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, right? He says, we're supposed to be the, the, the ones that are smarter than them. But we already know that we're not saved by how well you keep the law, but by faith in Jesus. And then he goes on and says something else. Not only that, we ourselves have what? We've put our faith in Christ Jesus. Now, you got to understand what he's saying here. He says he's saying this. Peter, if the Judaizers are right, you have just condemned yourself because you have put your faith alone 
in Jesus Christ. You see, here was Peter acting like he didn't eat with the Gentiles and kind of agreeing in action with the Judaizers. And Paul says to him, do you understand what you're doing with your actions? If you, by your actions, are acting like the Judaizers are right, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ too, fully. Not in the works of the law. You've, you've rejected the works of the law. You put your faith in Jesus. Do you realize you're condemning yourself? We put our faith in Jesus. And then he goes on and says something else that's even a little bit more powerful. He says, but if, look, I'm jumping ahead here, but I want you to see this and then we'll come back and break it all down. Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, then is Christ the servant of sin? Do you realize what he says here is this? Peter, if the Judaizers are right, not only are you condemned because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, and not only are you condemned because you've been eaten with the Gentiles, but you've also condemned Jesus. Because Jesus himself taught that there was no division. If you're acting like the Judaizers are right, you've just said that Jesus taught sin. That's what you just did, Peter. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Mark chapter 7. Look at a few things Jesus said. In Mark chapter 7, look at verses 14 through 23. Jesus says in verse 14 of chapter 7 of Mark, he says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not in his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Do you see what Jesus said? He declared in this part here, all foods clean. Why? Because it isn't what comes into you that makes you defiled. It's what comes out. And what is it coming out of? It's coming out of your heart. That's where the sin issue is. And we're going to break that all down a little bit tonight to make that a lot more clear for you. But I want you to just kind of understand the basis. Now we're going to go back and break all this down some more. But I want you to understand the basis of what's going on here. What Paul is saying to Peter is, don't you understand that if you are acting like the Judaizers are correct in the fact that you're pulling away from the Gentiles and acting like you didn't eat with them, you have just condemned yourself and me. Because we, first of all, who are Jews, we know that there's no such thing as righteousness through obedience to the law. Why don't, why'd you even do that? Second of all, we have put our faith alone in Jesus Christ. So if you're acting like they're right, we're condemned. And on top of that, did you think about the fact that you were condemning Jesus? Let me give you another example. Go to Acts chapter 10. Look at verse, Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 20. Remind you of something we looked at last week. That Peter himself experienced from Jesus himself. 
In Acts chapter 10, read verses 9 through 20 with me. It says, The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Now, again, we saw this last week. Remember, Peter knew full well that God was showing him, look, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. And the Gentiles are clean in my eyes. As you know, later on, he went to the house. The Holy Spirit came upon them and he said, wait a minute. The Holy Spirit came upon them just like he did us. Now I know God shows no partiality. Who was the one that told Peter that there's no partiality and the Gentiles are equal through faith in Christ? It was Jesus himself who taught him that. So what Paul is saying here in this section back here in Galatians chapter 2 is, now read it with me again and see if it doesn't make a little bit more sense. And we're going to deal with that sarcasm in just a second here. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, you and me, Peter, also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in your and my endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, if the Judaizers are right, then you just also said that Jesus promotes sin. Certainly not. Doesn't that make a whole lot more sense now? I had never tied it before to what was going on between Peter and Paul, because in most of my Bibles there was a break. Talks about justified by faith. A lot of you have those headings. And remember, those aren't inspired. But I want to deal with that sarcasm that he starts off with there by saying we're not Gentile sinners. Go with me to Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> in the book of Romans, we're not going to take the time to break it all down, but the, the teacher in me wants to just go back to chapter 1 and just start there. But in the book of Romans, Paul is laying a foundation. And in the beginning, if you know in Romans 1, he's talking about the wickedness in the world and how God's wrath is being revealed against all kinds of wickedness and stuff. And he talks about how these, these people, you know, uh, wouldn't acknowledge the Creator and they worship created things and all that stuff. And all the Jews that are listening to him are going, yeah, those Gentiles, they worshiped birds and animals and, and all that kind of stuff. But after he lays that foundation of how bad sin is and how it's in the world and God's going to bring judgment on sin. And he's got the Jewish people in his audience listening and thinking he's talking only about the Gentiles. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? 
While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemy among, among the Gentiles because of you. Did you see the sarcasm in there? You Jews who think that you've got it all together, that you're the ones who have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You've been given all this stuff. Let me ask you a quick question. Um, do you break God's law? And if they're honest, they'd have to say, yeah. And so Paul set them up by saying, God's going to bring judgment against wickedness. And the Jews think, yeah, that's those Gentiles. And then what happens is, then he says to him, wait a minute, you're just as guilty. You're just as guilty. Keep reading and you'll see this in chapter 3, verses 9 through 24. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 24. He then goes on and says, what then? Are we, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. For all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks, it, says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul started off in chapter 2 by going, you think the Gentiles are the ones who are wicked? Let me just show you, the law shows you that you're guilty too. And he then went and made the case that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin and they're guilty before God. There's no one righteous, not even one. And then he says, hey, the Bible also says that no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. But God has had a righteousness now that comes through faith in who? Jesus and his blood alone. That's word for word, folks. Go back to Galatians chapter 2. That's word for word what Paul says here in verses 15 through 16. All Paul does here in verses 15 and 16 is kind of reiterate what he had said in that section of Romans. We ourselves who are Jews by birth and not quote unquote Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That right there sums up everything we just read in Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3. There's the sarcasm and then the explanation. And then, like I said, in verses 17 and 18, sorry, 17, in verse 17, he goes on and just reminds Peter and says, look, if the Judaizers are right by how you're acting, uh, you and I are guilty, too, because we've uh, eaten with Gentiles. And if the Judaizers are right, you just condemn Jesus because he said that they were equal in our eyes and in his eyes. Are you saying that Jesus promotes sin? Certainly not. 
But then he says in verse 18 something very, very interesting. He says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. All right? For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I'm going to open it up. What do you think he's saying here? With what we've just had in mind, all that laid that. What do you think he's saying? Go ahead, Chris. Because if they were Jews that lived under the law, they would abolish the law of Christ, and then now they're saying they have to go back to the law, then they are transgressing on the part where they started, and then transgressing on where they started. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what he's saying. He says it. Yeah, yeah, he says, if I, I mean, Paul has just been spending his life since coming to know Christ, tearing down faith in the law and, and thinking the law was going to make you righteous. He's been tearing that down. Of course, there are people who are trying to kill him because he was saying that. But then if he tries to go back and rebuild what he tore down, like Chris said, I'm wrong one way or another, you know? It's, it, it, as a pastor, I used to always have this motto. If you lie to me, I'll hold you to it. Because I don't know if you're telling me the truth half the time. But if you lie to me, I'm going to hold you to it. Because it's really hard to keep a lie going. But I'm going to just take that you're taking me at my word. But in time, the real deal is going to become known. And that's pretty much what he's saying here. Look, I've been spending all my time trying to tear down the law and faith in the law. Not tear down the law per se, but faith in the law. And build up faith in Christ. Why in the world would I make myself to be wishy-washy or a phony or a transgressor by going back and trying to rebuild the law? It's kind of like Paul's going, oops. And so, to, I, want, I want to talk to, to us for a second. To go back to reliance on the law and outward actions for righteousness after trusting in Christ would be the real sin. I'm going to say that again. To go back to reliance on the law and outward actions for righteousness after trusting in Christ for righteousness would be the real sin. All right? Paul's saying to the Judaizers, you think we sinned by eating with Gentiles? But to leave faith alone in Christ and to go back to human effort for righteousness would be the real sin. I'm going to say that again. You guys think we sinned by eating with the Gentiles. Let me just tell you, to go back, to leave faith in Christ... And to go back to human effort for righteousness would be the real sin. Now, it's easy for us to just move on to verse 19, and we can't. Because as I was doing this study, God really spoke to my heart, and he said, Jim, you do the same thing. How many of you, show of hands, have put your faith alone in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Thank you for your honesty. Now, I want some more honesty. How many of you, after having trusted in Christ, have fallen prey to that mindset of thinking you need to do some things in order to be righteous in God's eyes. And the church has actually helped a little bit with it, hasn't they? The Judaizers aren't the only, only in Galatia. The Judaizers, those who would try to put us back under the law for righteousness, they're all around us and we've been raised in it. Some of them were preachers who said that's the way it is and you've got to do it this way or you're not going to be righteous before God. And we've learned to serve God most of our lives under fear and guilt and duty and obligation. And you feel guilty if you didn't do this or didn't do that. Were you agreeing with me or asking a question? Asking a question. Sure. Because, um, not, not just that, but um, it's your thought that your reward in heaven is going to be better. 
Well, definitely reward is tied to obedience to what God has to do through you. Without question, that we can't deny that, that is, that's tied to our obedience, not to how obedience to, to the good versus the bad, but obedience to what he wants to do through us. You know, the Bible says that when you trust Christ as your Savior, he not only forgives your sin, but he puts his spirit within you and he gives you gift or gifts that he wants to manifest through you. And if you let him live that through you, and we're going to get to that tonight, how we let Christ live through us. When you do that, he rewards you for what he does through you. There are rewards and there will be a loss of rewards without question. But what I'm talking about is not an issue of rewards, but many of us have felt that God was upset with us. Well, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, but I believe most of us would raise our hand on this one. How many of you have ever felt guilty because you didn't read your Bible and you felt like God was upset with you because you didn't read your Bible? Right? Or you don't share your faith as much as you ought to. And that there are certain things you have to do in order to be righteous before God. Every other religion, and Christianity is not even a religion, but every other religion in the world expects you to do something in order to be righteous. Whether it's so many prayers or so many gifts or so many this or so many journeys or every other religion expects you to do something. But Christianity is not a do religion. Christianity is a done religion. It's a, actually not even a religion. It's a faith in the fact that it has all been done by Jesus Christ. And as you're about to see, Paul will even go on and deal with what we're talking about. That even the things that he wants us to now do, he doesn't want us to do them. He wants to do them through us. And that's where we're going to be going in a second. Go ahead, Allison. We take off the yoke of Christ, which is easy and free, and we put on the yoke of Satan. We sure do. And so it's easy to say, well, look at Paul. I know what Paul's saying. He says that, you know, if he leaves faith alone in Christ and goes back to trying to do certain things to be righteous before God, he'd be transgressing. Well, we do the same thing. And so I just, and it's not for me to tell you what it is or what it is. You have a relationship with the Lord and I want you to study the word of God. But, you know, Bill and I were having this conversation last night as he and I were heading back from uh, Cedar where I was preaching and he was there with me. And, uh, and we we're having this conversation. Most of us were raised in churches that told, taught you that the Sunday was the Sabbath and you were to keep it holy and you weren't allowed to eat out and you weren't allowed to work. And all these legalistic rules on how to keep the Sabbath. And if you didn't keep those rules, at best, you were a lesser Christian. At worst, you might not even be a Christian. Yet, if we read our scriptures, first of all, if you do a study, you'll find out that the Sabbath was only between the nation of Israel and God. It was something that God had designed for them to separate them and to be an example and to be an evidence of his relationship with them. On top of that, Jesus himself said, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. I didn't make man to match up to the Sabbath rules. I gave man the Sabbath as a day of rest and a chance to recuperate and also for the purposes I want to do. Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 says so clearly, don't let anyone judge you on whether or not you keep a new moon festival or Sabbath day. These are all shadows of what to, was to come. The reality has been found in Jesus. D can it get any more clear? Don't let anybody judge you and whether or not you keep a Sabbath day. Yet we were all raised under that kind of teaching that said Sunday's the Sabbath, which, by the way, that it never was. That's why you get some churches are saying, no, no, no. You guys think Sunday's the Sabbath. Saturday's the Sabbath. No, we're as Christians in Christ. In Christ, we're not under a law of whether or not you keep a Sabbath and whether or not you're to eat out or whether or not you're able to pay golf or whether or not all these things we were taught. And we have, without realizing it, said we've got faith in Jesus Christ. But you've also got to do these certain things to be righteous, too. 
And it's easy to look at Paul and how Paul says, if I go back to rebuild what I tore down, I'm a transgressor. Folks, I say to you, don't try to rebuild what Jesus tore down. Understand that, and we're going to talk about what this freedom means in a second here. But understand that you've been set free in Jesus Christ and stop trying to add to what he has done for your righteousness. Years ago, I was sitting uh, at this table and I talked to this older lady who was sitting there. And I was just going around the room. I hadn't met many of these folks, but this one older lady, she's in her 80s, I think it was. And I said, tell me how you came to know Jesus. She said, what? I said, are you a Christian? She said, yes. I said, well, let me ask you a question. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Yes. Well, how come you know this? And this is what her answer was. Because I believe in Jesus and I've been living a good life. I mean, she got angry with me for the fact that I even brought it up. But her answer was, because I believe in Jesus and I've been living a good life. And I said to her, if you have any faith in anything you've done, you haven't fully put your faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says you're saved by faith alone in Jesus, not in anything you do. Now, I wish I could tell you she responded wonderfully. <clears throat> but she was very upset with me because she honestly really felt that how well she lived her life was determining whether or not she was saved. Many of you were raised in a denomination that taught Jesus did his part, but you've got to do your part. There are those who have taught that you've got to trust in Jesus, but you've got to meet the seven sacraments. And you've got to make sure you fulfill your duties in these areas. Jesus did his part, but you've got to do your part. A lot of us have heard, heard over the years, God helps those who help themselves. That's nowhere in the Bible, and it's actually blasphemy. The Bible teaches that God helps those who realize they are helpless. That's why Jesus at the start of the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the who? Poor in spirit. By the way, everybody's spiritually bankrupt. But that's why he next said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who realize I'm spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing I can do to be righteous before God. And that's why Paul goes in the next verse in verse 19 and says something very interesting. Look at what he says in verse 19. For through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. There's a lot here. He says, through the law, I died to the law. What does that mean? What does he mean through the law, he died to the law? Any idea? He couldn't keep it, definitely. The law was used by God to show him that he couldn't keep it. And once he realized he couldn't keep it, and he put his faith in Jesus Christ to be given righteousness, he now had died to the law, and he was now to live to God. We're going to break that down in a second. But I want you to see how Paul put it himself. Go back to, with me to Romans chapter 3. He literally says the law is what made him dead to the law. And I'll be honest with you, I've been knowing this and studying this for a while, but in doing so, in studying for this lesson, God showed me something I hadn't seen before about this. It's deeper than we think. Romans chapter 3, look at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We've seen this before. The law doesn't make you righteous. You're obeying it doesn't make you righteous. The law's purpose is to show you what? You can't keep it. Here's what I want you to see something, though. We've always looked at the law showing us that we couldn't keep it. Have you kept this commandment? Well, actually, no. Have you kept this commandment? Actually, no. What did we see what Jesus said, though, back in Mark chapter 7? 
He said that what makes a man guilty is what comes out of his heart. See, we thought about, well, I actually stole something when I was a kid, or I actually lie, I told a lie here. And we keep thinking about when our, the law showing us we're guilty about the outward action. Actually, it goes deeper than that. The Bible says that you have a sin problem, and whether it even manifests itself, which it will, but whether it even manifests itself, you still have sin. That's why when Jesus walked up on the scene and he was teaching these Jewish people who thought they were righteous before God, he said, let me, let me uh, the law says you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you've even lusted after a woman in your what? Heart. Heart you've committed adultery. Do you realize what Jesus was just doing? He was helping them to see, look, they're thinking I'm righteous. I have never committed adultery. And Jesus said, actually, have you ever had lustful thoughts in your heart toward a woman? Of course, everybody does. Well, that's actually because God looks at the heart. He's not looking at the outward action. He's looking at the heart. You've got sin. You've broken God's law. What? Here I was trying to keep the Sabbath and, and follow all the sacraments and do all the things that I'm supposed to do. And now you're telling me that as good as I've been, I'm still guilty? Remember what Paul said? Go back to, real quick, put a book, bookmark here in Romans. Go with me to Philippians chapter 3 and look at what he says. Philippians chapter 3. Look at what he says in uh, um, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also... If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, what does he say? He says, if you were to look at my record outwardly, I didn't break the law. But I came to realize that I was a sinner because of the sin that was actually in my heart. You're all born with it, folks. Whether it manifests itself or not. And you're going to see Paul say this. It's there. Go to Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 20. The law showed Paul that he had sin and that he was a sinner. The law not only revealed his sin, but... It did it by fueling the sin. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 20. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law came in to increase the trespass? The law was added so that sin would increase? Why in the world does he say that? What does he mean by the law was added so that sin would increase? Not just the knowledge of it and not just awareness of it, but there's more to it than that. Exactly. Remember last time someone says to you, I dare you to step across the line. What do you want to do now? Think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He said the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is what? The law. What fuels sin? Actually, interestingly enough, this holy, perfect law of God Actually, when put in front of us who have sin, and we all do, it comes from Adam, he keeps dying. Has, has anybody ever noticed that, that Adam and Eve broke a command? 
But between Adam and Eve and Moses, there was no commands of God to break. Did they all live? No, everybody died between Adam and Moses. Why? Because there was still sin. Even though they weren't breaking a command, there was still sin because the evidence of sin is death. All of us have sin within us. It's there at birth. David said it this way, in sin did my mother conceive me. He didn't say that the act of sin, oh, conception was a sin. He's been a sinner since he was born. And folks, every one of us have had it passed down to us from Adam. We're all guilty of sin. And Paul said, if you were to look at me on the outward, anybody have confidence in the flesh? As to the legalistic righteousness, I was blameless. I challenge you to show me anywhere outwardly that I broke the law. But I came to realize that I was a guilty of sin because it's in my heart. And then he actually makes it even more clear. Go to Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. He actually describes his situation. Romans 7, verses 17, 7 through 13. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? No, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin, sorry, the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, stay with me here, because as you read this, just this by itself, it looks like if the commandment hadn't come, he wouldn't have sinned. But that's not what he says. He clarifies it in a couple of verses later. But so just stick with me here. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, he says this, it was there all along and it was going to kill me because I had it. And I'm the soul that sins, it shall die. But when the law came, it not only showed me that I was a sinner, it fueled it and it grew. You know, when you deal with cancer, there are certain things that it eats and th certain things that it doesn't eat. In the same way, our sin eats the law in the sense that it now wants to fight it and, go and grow against it. And the sin in us, like I said, someone says, I dare you to step over this line. Now, all of a sudden, you want to. It's there. And so Paul says, through the law, he came to realize he couldn't keep it. Not only did he realize he couldn't keep it, he came to realize that it was actually making him sin more. And this law that he was trying to put his faith in was actually killing him because as he tried more and more not to keep it, more and more he wanted, I mean, not to break it, more and more he wanted to break it, and it started to create this real big problem. And he started to realize, I got an escalating problem now. What am I going to do? And that's when Jesus showed up and said, let me explain to you what has been said all along. A righteousness, we already read this in chapter 3, a righteousness has been made known through faith in Jesus Christ, which the law and the prophets have been talking about all along. And it comes through faith alone in the fact that Jesus did what you could not do and what I could not do. He lived in a human body just like yours and mine, yet without sin. Why? It hadn't been passed on to him. Who was his father? God. 
That's why he needed to be born of a virgin. He had an earthly mother, but his father was God and sin had not been passed on to Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin. That's extremely important, folks, because if Jesus was just a human being who was a good, godly guy, he had a problem because sin had passed on to him because he had a mom and a daddy who were both human and sin passes on that way to all of us. And Jesus already had sin if he was born in that way. He had to be born of a virgin. And Jesus lived without sin. And then God does what? He punishes him instead of you and I. Poured all sin on top of him. And well, let's just keep reading and see what Paul says. Go to Psalm 51, actually. Let's go to Psalm 51. Let's see what David says. And I want you to see for yourself how the Old Testament has been preaching the gospel of faith alone in God through Jesus Christ. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6. Through David's sin with Bathsheba, he came to realize something about himself. We're going to start in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, David says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Who's he asking to take away his sin? God. He's not saying, what have I got to do to make this right? He's saying, God, you got to wash it. you got to take it away. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being where the heart is. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me, God, wash me with hyssop. Hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. God, you do it. Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it, or you would, you would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. Folks, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's been there all along. You know, for years as a young man, when I would struggle with lust and give in to it, I used to go to Psalm 51 and I used to pray it to say, oh, God, I'll do better. Oh, God. I'm broken like David and I'm so such a guilty person. But instead of really understanding that David was saying, look, I can't do anything to make this right. You're going to have to just erase my sin and give me righteousness. You're going to have to wash me. I used to pray this and say, I'm going to do better. Folks, you can't. That's kind of why I'm a little bit off nowadays on rededications. You know, for years we've had the altar call and people come to trust Jesus as their Savior. And we also had those who wanted to rededicate their lives. And unfortunately, a lot of us were just trying to sanctify the flesh. Are going down the altar and weeping and saying, God, I'll do better. God, I'll do better. 
I met after preaching at Cedar last night with a young man named Jason. He comes up and wants to talk to me. And I, I asked him if he knew Jesus as a Savior. He said, yes. I said, then why have you come to talk to me? He said, I want to give Jesus my life. I said, you just told me that you already have. He said, no, I know that. He said, I just need to give it to him again. And I said, Jason, relax. You think God wants you to surrender all. When we sang that song, I surrender all. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Please say yes before I come to the next verse. All right? You know what I've come to realize? God doesn't want us to surrender all right now. He wants us to be willing to surrender the area he's talking to us about. Yes, all, in all, one day, it's all going to be given to him. But you know what? There's a lot that he's going to ask of you down the road that he ain't asking of you right now. You're not ready for that. And you don't want him to ask you for it all now, would you? But we have done that in our understanding of, without realizing it, we've added the flesh into our worship of God. God, here I am. I surrender all. And he says, you know what? All I'm looking for is a broken heart right now and a contrite spirit. And I want you to surrender to what it is I'm talking to you about right now. We'll deal with the all when the all time comes. Let's just deal with today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day's got enough trouble of its own. Just understand what I'm give, asking for right now. And let's go there. Because how many times have we sung, I surrender all, walked the aisle, made a promise, made a pledge, cried a tear, said, God, I'll do better. And then we what? We go right back to doing it and we beat ourselves up. David said, I've had this problem since I was born. And unless you wash me, unless you erase my sin, I'm in trouble. Because I'd give a sacrifice if that was going to do something. But there ain't nothing I can do to make this right. God, you clean it up. You give me a new heart. You give me a right spirit. And doesn't that sound like what Paul now says? Go back to Galatians chapter 2. says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, he says, I'm not going to try to live this life out now for him. By the way, back in the end of chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, it says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might what? Live to God. Folks, I'm not going to take the time to have you turn there, but if you want to look at Romans chapter 7, verse 6, or Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, you're going to see that Paul talked about how we have been set free from the law so that we might what? Be given over to a new master. It's Romans 7, 6, and that's Romans chapter uh, 6, uh, sorry, Romans 7, 6, and uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And also Romans 6, 15 through 23. There's so much here that we don't have time for tonight. That's Romans 7, 6, Romans 6, 15 through 23, and 1 Corinthians 16, 9 through, 19 through 20. Folks, you have been set free from the law, but you have been now given over to a new master. It's Jesus. But look closely at verse 19. Does anybody's version say that I might live for God? No, does it say for? Yes. For is not good. Two. Yeah, well, NIV is a thought for thought, and it's not a word for word. <laughs> Paul says, he didn't say that I'm going to live for God. I'm going to live to God. And that's what he clarifies now in verse 20. I, no, you don't, you don't, you don't have to scribble in your Bible. You can make a little note on the side if you want. 
I have been crucified with Christ, Paul said, and I no longer live. The life I now live, I live by faith in Jesus, who died for me and now lives his life through me. And I want you to see this now. This is where we get ourselves in trouble. This is where we have, this is where we've ended up the way we have in our churches, in our Christian, Christianity and misunderstanding. We have been set free from sin and we're not saved by righteousness. And most of us hopefully understand that even though we've crept back into it. Well, how did we creep back into it? We crept back into it because there is some kind of a responsibility that we have. We've been saved and we're supposed to live for God, we think. No, 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 no. We're to live to God and there's a big difference because we now are putting our faith in Jesus' righteousness, and he's now become our master. You know, you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. You, you're not free to do whatever you want. No, no, no. You're free to serve a new master. You've been set free from the law. Don't worry about the law. You're not being judged on your righteousness by how good you've been. You've now been set free to serve a new master. But this new master is different from the law. See, the law expected you to do things a certain way. And then you'd be righteous or obedient to the master of the law. Your new master, Jesus, says, did you do anything to get righteous? No, sir. And I don't expect you to do anything to obey me. I want to do it through you and for you. What I'm asking you to do in your living to me is to let me live my life through you. And how do we do that, Jesus? The same way you got saved, by faith that I will. Again, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, you've heard me quote it many times. In the same way in which you received Jesus as Lord, walk in him. How did you get saved? You believed the message of salvation. You heard the message of salvation. You believed it was true. You asked God to do it, and you walked out of that encounter believing he had, correct? This is how you let Jesus live his life through you. You read the word and you hear what God's asked you to do, whether it's forgiveness or whatever. And you believe that it's true that he wants to do that through you. You ask him to do it and you act like it will and has happened. And as you learn to believe that God's going to do what he asked you to do, you watch. Well, let's take a look at how the scripture describes it. Go real quick to uh, Galatians chapter 5. We're in Galatians 2. Go to Galatians 5. Look at verse 16. But I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Did you catch that? What's to be our focus? Stopping sin or stop sinning? No, our focus is to be what? Walking. Later on at the end of this chapter, he puts it this way. Keep in step with the spirit. By the way, if you're going to try to keep in step with anybody, if you've ever been in marching band, I know Chris was, you have to focus on keeping your eye on the person next to you, correct? There's the leader and then everybody's kind of tied. And when you're in, you, you try to, you're continually watching to keep in step in the same way. This is what it means. You're walking with Jesus by faith. You know he's in you. You know he said he's going to give life to your mortal body. You know that he says he's going to give you the same victory that he was able to live when he lived in the human body. And you have to say, Jesus, I believe that you're going to do it. And I ask you to do it. And I'm going to go, if it's forgive this person because you said, I'm going to go and I'm going to say I forgive him because I believe you're going to give me the grace and it's going to happen. And you're going to learn to keep in step with him. And as you focus on walking in him, you're also going to look back and go realize, you know what? I don't struggle with sin anymore. But how many of us were taught to go try to stop sinning? You put your focus there. You're not going to have victory because you're trying to do it and you can't do it. Your new master doesn't ask you to live for him. Your new master wants you to live to him. And that means he lives his life through you. It gets even more clear. Go to uh, um, uh, Philippians chapter 2. 
You're in Galatians. Go over two books. You're in Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 2. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen closely. For it is God who works in you both to will or to give you the desire and to what? And to work for his or act for his good pleasure. Who's doing the work? It's God. We're to obey him, but it's not us, Lord, I'll do a better job. No, it's believing that he will do it through us. We do what he says, but we're totally trusting that God's the one that's going to make it work. You know what? Those of you that struggle with certain things, certain sins that, as we like to say, continually kick our rear end, stop trying to stop and stop by saying, Jesus, you said that this wasn't right, that this isn't good for me, that you have better for me. And I'm going to say no, but you're going to have to give me the, 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 the ability to say no to it because my flesh keeps wanting to do it. But you said you'd give me victory, and I believe you will, so I'm not going to do it. And you watch all of a sudden the desire when he is allowed to take control. By the way, I could show you a bunch more scriptures like this, but did you know that Jesus lived like this? I'm going to show you two real quick, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Go to Isaiah 61. When Jesus walked on the earth, he actually let the Father, the Spirit of God, do his working through him. Isaiah 61. Jesus wasn't doing it. He was actually living out how we are to live this life with the Father living through us. Isaiah 61. Listen closely. I've never thought about this until I was kind of preparing for this. I've quoted this. You've quoted this. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Who's this referring to? Jesus. Remember, Jesus himself reads it in Luke chapter four when he's in the hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue. He reads this. He sits down and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this applies to me. Listen to what Jesus just said. The spirit of God is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Go to John chapter 14 and look at verse 10. John chapter 14, verse 10. I want you to see what Jesus says here. He says, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. In other words, Jesus says, these things that I'm saying to you, it's not me saying it. It's the Father saying it through me. That's why Jesus says, I only do what I see my Father doing. My Father's always at His work, but I'm only doing what I see my Father doing and what my Father does through me. Paul says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, if you speak, may they be the very words of God. So folks, I know this is hard for us. But just as hard as it is for a lost person to understand that all they need to do to be saved is to believe that what Jesus did on the cross will cover their sins and that they are to respond by faith and they receive it. You know, that sounds crazy to some people, doesn't it? You mean there's nothing I have to do? No, there's nothing you have to do. You need to believe that it's true and that God will save you. I knew this guy named George up in Chicago. He'd come to church every single Sunday. And the church had been praying for him for I don't know how many years. And he would never walk the aisle. But he always come every Sunday. And I would go talk to George and say, George, why don't you trust Jesus as your Savior? You come every week. You're in Sunday school. You're in worship service. Well, actually, when we had two services, he'd come to both. And his wife was saved. His kids were saved. And this is what George would always say. He says... It sounds so wonderful, but I know me. I won't change. I want it, Jim. I want it, but it's, I know me. I'm not going to change. 
And all I could say to him was, George, you're trying to understand what it's going to be like after salvation before you trust him. You're trying to understand what it's going to be like to have Jesus in you and forgiven you before it happens. You can't understand it. You've got to receive it by faith. But when you do, it'll be so clear. That rascal trusted Christ as his Savior four years after I left the church. But you know what? Praise the Lord. And he called me up and he said, Jim, you were right. I didn't think I'd change. But you know what? I've loved my wife, but I love my wife like I've never loved my wife. And all of a sudden, everything about me is different. You were right. I'm going to say the same thing to you, Christians. This letting Jesus live his life through you sounds just as crazy as trusting Jesus for your save, as your Savior. Come on, really? you telling me that I'm really going to have God's power and things are going to change? I don't know how to say it, except you've got to trust that God's word is true. And if you will, by faith, in the same way in which you trusted him for salvation, believe that he's now in you and that you no longer try to do like you used to do for your old master, but you surrender to your new master and say, I believe you will. And Lord, I'm going to walk in obedience to your word, but I'm totally trusting that you will make it work. Folks, this has changed my preaching. Man, I used to worry when I, I've been preaching for 30 years and I used to study and prepare and I study and prepare now. But before I used to be all like, I hope I do it right. I hope I'm ready. Have I prayed enough? I used to, you know, that they would have that special room for the pastor to go sit in and pray to get ready for that time. Now, when I walk into a church, they'll say, Pastor, would you like to go have some time with God? And I'm like, no, I'm cool. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I've been walking with him, talking to him. I'm ready to go in season and out. I'm ready. It used to be before I used to afterwards examine everything I did. Well, maybe I should have said this. Oh, I shouldn't have told that story. And of course, Becky said that a few times. But I, uh, but I used to sit and examine. Well, maybe I had done this. If I had done that, now I walk out of the pulpit and say, Lord, I walked in trusting that you were going to say what you needed to say. I'm walking out believing that you've done what you wanted to do. And the results are up to you. And folks, I've started to see God do many, many more things as I stopped trying to do it for him. You can't serve God in that way. The only way you can serve God is to trust that he will do it through you. And I know it sits and makes no much, so much so little sense. That's why in the church we have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, but we've tried to rebuild what we tore down or what Jesus tore down because we didn't understand this aspect. And so little by little, people have said, yeah, but you still got to do this and you still got to do that. Allison? If it made sense, it wouldn't be faith. Exactly. If it made sense, it wouldn't be faith. And then at the last verse, go back to Galatians chapter 2. There's so much more I want to say, but I want you to come back in December. Look at verse 21, and we'll wrap up with this. What Paul says in the last verse here ties it all back up. Remember, this is all tied to his rebuke of Peter. And he says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose Peter, do you realize that if the Judaizers are right and the way you were acting was this for the Judaizers was right, you just said that Jesus' death on the cross was a waste of time. And you know what? That's been one of the greatest ways that I've had to share with people the gospel of Jesus. Because you know in this world, many people and most people think that they're going to get to heaven by how good they have been. And they know they've broken some of God's laws, but they don't think they're that bad. And this is the question I ask most people when I run into someone like that. I just ask them this simple question. If you can get to heaven by being good, why did Jesus die on the cross? And most every single one, except one person, most every single person has always said, 
Wow, I never thought about that. If we can get to heaven by being good, then why did Jesus die on the cross? Oh, and by the way, uh, the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling everything. Christians, if you can earn more favor with God by how much money you give or how faithful you've been to church or whether or not you went to visitation or whether or not you should have been at work day, if you can be, earn more favor by God by doing these things, then why did Jesus die on the cross? Paul said, I don't nullify the grace of God. Because if we can get righteous by our effort, Jesus died for no reason. Oh, and I'm going to say this nicely. Please hear this in love. Those of us who have trusted him as our Savior, we know we're going to heaven when we die because we've trusted in Jesus for that. But remember, the life we live is supposed to be lived in that same type of faith that God's going to do it. When you and I fall back into that old pattern of trying to do things in order to be pleasing to God, we too nullify the grace of God. And we say that Jesus died for no reason, because Jesus' death was for that too. He didn't die just so you can go to heaven. He also died so that you would be able to live the Spirit-filled life. We'll deal with this more next time we get together, because Paul's going to continue this thought. But remember, in the same way in which you received him, walk in him. Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you for this chance to come and, and to study your word. And Lord, I thank you that the more we spend time in it, even though we, it's a passage that many of us have probably looked at and heard preached and taught on for years, the more we take time to just allow you to speak to us and look at your word in the context and comparing it to the Holy Scripture, the more all of a sudden we see the depth of what's going on here. Lord, I pray that we would continue to walk in the freedom that you've given us. The freedom to allow you to live your life through us. Not worrying about whether or not we've done good enough, but believing that you will do through us what you have in mind. And Lord, that means we're going to have to take our eyes off of what everybody else is doing and let you show us what you have for us. It means we've got to take our eyes off of how everybody else has told us we're supposed to do it and ask you according to your word and your spirit within us to show us how you would have us do it. And Lord, I pray, thanking you for your mercy, that we will less and less act like we're nullifying your grace. I know that was not Peter's intention. I know that was not his desire or his will, yet he did do that when he started acting like a certain way for the approval of man instead of just living in the grace of who you are and what you've done. And Lord, we've done the same thing. We thank you for your loving rebuke tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.